It is a privilege to be back with you. Uh, I was laughing over there. I'm hooked up to a microphone. I had those uh, monitors in my ears and had the phone on me. I thought, my gosh, I have a good chance of getting electrocuted this morning. And wouldn't the abortion lobby love that? That would make front page news in that industry. Uh, I haven't been with you for a week. Jessica and I were at the March for Life in Washington, D.C. for most of the week. We were up there Tuesday through late Friday and had a great time. Last week, I was invited to speak in Lubbock, Texas. So I was in Lubbock at a megachurch. They asked me to preach four times. Four times. And when they first asked me, I said, look, it's not that complicated. Surely everybody's going to get it the first time. By the second service, I was getting hoarse, so I had to stop singing all the worship choruses. But it was one of these um, churches that has very lively worship, which I love. That had the drums and the rock band and the lights and the sound, and it was very emotional. I loved that. So it was fun for me. But it, it reminded me of my own church upbringing. So my parents were saved uh, in their early 30s in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. I didn't think anybody ever got saved in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. <laughs> So we started going to church when I was uh, six or seven years old. And one of my earliest memories of being in church, this is a terrible memory, but um, was in the church lounge in Erie, Pennsylvania. And they had hard candy that you could eat and suck on. And I was sucking on a butterscotch hard candy when it got lodged in my throat. And I was seven or eight years old. And I got lodged in my throat in such a way that I wasn't choking. I could still breathe, but it was lodged in my throat. And so the crowd of, you know, mainly elderly people around me began to panic, and I was trying to say, I can breathe, I can breathe, and as, uh, I don't know, a few dozen people were watching me, I felt these arms embrace me from behind, and I had enough sense of mind to turn around, and in horror, I realized that the pastor's wife, who was a very robust woman, (laughs) was about to attempt the Heimlich on me. Now, I was trying to tell her I wasn't choking and realized that before I could get that out, she had secured her rather firm grip around my ribcage and was about to compress my lungs. And I thought, and you all know this, I was a rather diminutive young man. I was very short. I thought from the side, this must look like a grandmother hugging a teddy bear. And in fact, she did squeeze so hard that on the first compression, the butterscotch candy shot out of my mouth, barely missed an 80-year-old elder, and I was mortified. I was mortified. That was the first of numerous embarrassed experiences which would define my life, and it made me the man I am today. We moved from the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church to a Methodist church in Erie, Pennsylvania, which turned Pentecostal, which... In retrospect, sounds like an oxymoron. So as a Methodist Pentecostal church, it's actually there where I learned uh, how to improvise on the piano. I've told the story before, but I was 12 years old, and they said, hey, Brian, we'd like you to be the pianist. We have an organist. We'd like you guys to play together. I said, that's fun. I'd be happy to do that. And they sat me down, and they, they put chord sheets in front of me. Now, I was trained classically with music and scores and all that, and they, this was the first time I'd seen basically one page with a bunch of letters on it, and I said, what is this? And they said, this is a chord sheet. And I said, what am I supposed to do with it? And they said, improvise. So that was how I learned to improvise in the Methodist church, a Pentecostal Methodist church back in the, I guess, 80s. From there, we went to the Assembly of God church in Erie, a big Assembly of God church, which was Pentecostal. And then when I went to college, Jessica and I went to a Presbyterian USA church, which was still fairly orthodox, and that was a good experience. Then Justin and I got married, moved to Pittsburgh, 
Went to a non-denominational church for 10 years, and when we moved to South Florida a dozen years ago, that's when we got into the PCA at Dr. Kennedy's church. But being a church musician growing up, I have been in every type of Protestant service you can imagine. I have been in Pentecostal services where women are running around with flags and people are getting slain in the spirit. And I've been in Russian Orthodox churches, which was, you know, very, very traditional, very, very liturgical. In fact, I was hired as the organist at a Catholic mass for three years. So I am, by definition, a Christian mutt. <laughs> and find myself comfortable in just about any sort of worship setting you, you can imagine. And that was what it was like last week. It was wonderful to be back in that arena. And I preached there on abortion. They asked me to talk about the sanctity of human life. And normally, if any of you have heard me speak before here or in other places, my message is basically the same, which is abortion is really, really bad and we need to be doing more. That's sort of the, the bottom line. And that's true. Abortion remains the leading cause of death in America. One million children a year are murdered in the womb. 3,000 every day. And we do need to be doing more because as the church, as Christians, the pro-life ethic is unique to us. We are the only people group on the planet who can claim that human beings are so valuable from conception to natural death that the Savior of the universe, our Creator Himself, came down and died for us. That means that you and I and babies in the womb have intense, inestimable, intrinsic value. And that is unique to the Christian faith. Therefore, if we are to see abortion become unthinkable and unavailable in the United States, that is a role of the church. So how do we influence those spheres of influence around us to move us from a culture of death in which we currently live to a culture of life. But as I thought about coming back and sharing this time with you, I thought, you know, this church has heard this type of message for five or six years, and this church is probably the most involved church in the efforts to end abortion, perhaps in the city. And I began to be grateful to God and to you for the enormous amount of uh, time, attention, and resources you all have given the Human Coalition. You know the story. Both this church and Human Coalition sort of grew up together. And I, I happened to talk to Jamie Peterson, our founding pastor, last week, and we got reacquainted, and it was great to hear his voice. And it brought back these memories of the early days when he was struggling to get those 14 families together and to begin to build the church, and we were beginning to build Human Coalition. We started with Three guys in my living room. We're now the largest pro-life organization in the country, 155 employees in five states. It's been wonderful to see these two things grow up together, but most of you, if not all of you, have been involved in some way, shape, or form. And I was praising God and thanking for that. The church supports us as a mission agent. Numerous of those among you support us financially, but many, many, many of you have given us your material resources, diapers, Baby Bottle Campaign, Shirley Lenz has been a rock star working through this. There's been numerous others. Oftentimes I see you volunteering inside the office. The Miller boys are a staple. Judy Enzer is a staple. Have you ever noticed the woman cannot not smile? <laughs> she's, she's like the female Mac Magdalene. <laughs> cannot stop smiling. Every time she's in the office, she brightens up. The office. We have this, it's called the living room, right? We have the offices open. There's no offices, which sounded like a good idea at the time. It's not a good idea. <laughs> we won't be doing that again. We thought, wow, this is going to promote collaboration. And you know what happens? The millennials come in and they stick their headphones in. And it's just like they're in cubes that you can't see anyway. So uh, next time around, we'll go back to more of a traditional format. But when Judy comes in the office, 
Everybody's, oh, Judy's here. And they're bright and they're smiling and it changes the atmosphere of the office. So you don't know what sort of positive impact you had on us through not only your giving, but coming to the events and donating goods and services and coming into the office and participating and all the things we do. So I am not going to deliver that sermon today. Hey, abortion is the worst genocide in American history. We need to do more. You are doing more. You are doing more. And you are a model for other congregations around this country. We have been blessed, so blessed, to have as our pastors two gentlemen who understand the value of the sanctity of human life and are unafraid. I wish Patrick were here because I would ask you to give him a warm round of applause. He continues to follow God's leading, preach the entirety of Scripture, even those parts that are highly uncomfortable and controversial. And I am deeply grateful for his leadership, especially in the area of abortion. Amen? Amen. What I want to do today is to arm you, therefore, with a few little pieces of apologetic information. You, of course, get into conversations about all sorts of controversial subjects. It might be in your family. It might be in your workplace. It might be just uh, in your normal day-to-day activities. And I want to give you a few nuggets from scripture, as well as from ethics and culture, so that you have a sense of how do I talk about abortion and the sacredness of human life in the public square when it comes upon me or when I invite that discussion. I've said before the primary reasons why the church at large does not engage in the worst genocide in American history is because of fear and ignorance. Therefore, courage and education are the solutions to those things. And I hope to share a few educational morsels for you today. And I picked this New Testament text in Acts 17 because I love the Mars Hill dialogue. We won't go through the whole thing, but basically Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus in Greece. And if you recall the story, he's surrounded by all these religious and intellectual leaders. And they come into Mars Hill and they basically talk all day long and debate and And they think themselves very wise and and very whatnot. And he says, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now keep in mind, Paul at that moment is surrounded by idols. Idols. Primarily Greek idols. And he's watching as these men and women, primarily men, engage in debate and dialogue about false religion. And I've always been fascinated by Paul's approach because he quite rightfully could have started... By saying, men of Athens, you are all heathens and you're going to hell. (laughs) But Paul doesn't choose to do that. Paul finds one thing that he and they have in common. He says, as I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I came across an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he uses that as an entrance to talk about the majesty of God and the saving faith found only in Jesus Christ. It is a brilliant apologetic. And I think it gives us a foundation to have pro-life discussions in what is the most divisive issue in our country for the last 40 years at least. If you want to get on somebody's good side, talk to a pro-lifer about pro-life. If you want to get on somebody's bad side, talk to somebody in favor of abortion about abortion. And if you want to make somebody uncomfortable, just bring it up in casual conversation with the mushy middle. I've joked with you before that oftentimes I'm in conversations with strangers, and as normal, the question will come up, oh, what do you do? And so if I'm feeling nice... I will say something like, well, I serve women who are pregnant and and have needs that we can meet. Oh, that's wonderful. If I don't want to talk to them, I say, I save babies from abortion. (laughs) 
And that usually ends the conversation, okay? So there's two different approaches there. I would highly advise the first. I think that serves the audience better. But if you're feeling cantankerous, a bit curmudgeonly, then I invite you to talk about the fact that abortion is the worst moral evil ever inflicted on a free society. And it's a leading cause of death not only here but around the world. So how do we winsomely have conversations about what God's word says about the leading cause of death in America that engages people and allows us to take the Mars Hill approach? Paul basically said, let's find a thing that we have in common and alter a God that we worship. And let me use that as a bridge to have a meaningful conversation. Understanding at the end of that conversation, things didn't necessarily go well for Paul. If you read the entire passage, some said, I want to hear more. And others thought he was nuts. That is the cost of proclaiming the gospel. Do you know that we are responsible for preaching it, not for the results? Amen? Amen. Amen. So I'm going to outline my sermon here for you. And if you are a note taker, I'm going to give you the edited version in advance. Six proof texts. Six proof texts. Two warnings and two applications. So if you are a note taker, six proof texts, two cautions. And two responses, two applications. The first proof text is very simple. It is your standard pro-life verses. Okay, Psalm 139. How many of you have ever heard Psalm 139 quoted in relation to the sanctity of human life? Yeah. So the beautiful part of that psalm, it's what's called a chiastic. It's written in an ancient form where the, the crux of the chapter is actually in the middle. We in Western culture are used to the, the conclusion being at the end. But oftentimes in ancient literature, the main point of the passage is in the middle. And that's where David just exclaims the wonder of being created as a human being. And so one of your proof points, one of your talk points, when you are engaging in conversation, can simply to bring up the majesty and the wonder of human life. Or you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it full well. The human body is extraordinary. I find evolution as it's described in Darwinism so difficult to understand or accept. Not because it doesn't make some scientific sense. But because I look at my hands and I look at my eyeballs. And I look at the way that God has mysteriously woven together me as a creature. And I think this is not logically possible to have formed on its own. It's just not possible. It doesn't make rational sense. So you have an entry point using... David's description of the wonder of the human being. Somebody says, well, I believe in abortion. Well, can you help me understand the majesty of the eyeball? Can you help me understand why if we are derived just from goo and soup and proteins that we even know what music is? Music serves no rational purpose. It doesn't further the human species. It is an expression of creativity. Where did we come from? So you may use as an entry point David's description and the marvel and the wonder of human life. Amen. Amen. Proof text number two. Exodus 20. Ten commandments, the Decalogue, Exodus 21 through 17. You're aware of this, but the first four have to do with our relationship between man and God. The second six have to do with our relationship in community. The first thou shalt not is thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not take the life of an innocent human being. Understand the abortion arguments, the abortion apologetic is based 150% on lies. 
There is nothing truthful at all about the abortion apologetic. It is entirely emotional. And so, as Scott Klusendorf often says, it boils down to something very simple. Is it just to take the life of an innocent human being, yes or no? And the Ten Commandments answers that question. It says, no, it is wrong to take the life of an innocent human being. Because you as a pro-life Christian, all you have to do is to get your opponent, you're a pro-abortion person, to describe what life in the womb is, and you win. You win. Because life in the womb is as human as you and me. You did not evolve into something different from what you were as a zygote, the first early stage of human being. You are just simply a more mature, larger version of you as a zygote. You were you at the very first step of conception. That's a scientific fact. So very simply, is it wrong to kill an innocent human being, yes or no? And when your opponent says, I don't think we should kill innocent human beings, but, 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 life in the womb isn't human. No, I'm sorry, that's not scientific fact. Life in the womb is not valuable. Well, let's have a conversation about that. And the valuation conversation is 100% of the time winnable from the pro-life side. And you don't even need scripture to argue that. That's proof text number two. Number three. Genesis 9. Oftentimes you will run into pro-abortion Christians. I realize it hurts when we confess this, but do you know there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who profess Christ and still believe that abortion should be legal and available at least in some circumstances. What's fascinating about Genesis 9 is it contains what's known as the Noahic Covenant. Noah comes out of the flood, he's got the ark. The very first hint that God gives of human government, men governing themselves under God's sovereignty, is found in Genesis 9. And do you know the first time that God hints at man being able to judge men in the form of government is around the issue of taking innocent human life. God institutes capital punishment. Human life is so valuable that if you take an innocent human life, you will lose your own life. And you know why in Genesis 9 he says that the punishment for taking an innocent human life is so severe? And he says this in the Noahic Covenant because you are created in my image. We are Amago Dei, made in the image of God, the only created being on the planet who has the honor and privilege and beauty and majesty of being the Omagu Dei. Now I say this almost every time I speak. Statistically speaking, one third of you in the congregation here or listening on the podcast have had an abortion. That's true in the church. One third of every women population in every church has had an abortion somewhere in their past. That's the national average. Catholic Protestant doesn't matter. So while we acknowledge that God values human life to the extent that he instituted capital punishment in the Noahic Covenant, we also understand that Christ's Sacrifice on the cross covers the sin of abortion. Amen? Amen. So if you are post-abortive, if anybody listening is post-abortive, understand that because of Christ, the sin of abortion can be forgiven, is forgiven, if we accept that forgiveness. At the same time, we need to acknowledge the holiness of God and the fact that any divine work of art, which you all are, made in His image, is so precious, is so valuable, is so worthy of His protection, regardless of the circumstances of conception... That we as a church need to be about the business of rescuing those children. That's our Old Testament text, Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. Proof text number four. I love this one. I talked about it a bit last year. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The conception of Christ. If dealing with a pro-abortion Christian, and you are trying to find common ground, 
you might ask the question, did Jesus Christ come to earth as a baby? And they will most likely say, yes. And you will politely say, oh, I disagree. Jesus actually came to earth as a zygote. And he did. We think that Jesus' earthly existence started in the manger. It started nine months before, just like you and I started our existence nine months before our birth. If we spend 30 seconds to contemplate what that means, a pro-abortion Christian has a very hard time defending abortion for any circumstances because Jesus was slightly unplanned to marry Joseph. Do you not agree? Mary didn't know it was coming. Joseph was mortified when he found out. And it took two angels to calm them both down. (laughs) Angelic visits. But the point is that Jesus burst onto the scene through the very act that you and I burst onto the scene. It is one of the greatest mysteries in all of Scripture that the God of the universe who created the process by which you and I are formed came to earth through the same process. The Creator came to earth as a human being through His own act of creation. My goodness, is that mind-blowing. So you might say to your pro-abortion or mushy middle Christian friend, can you help me understand what the conception of Jesus Christ means for the value of human life? He was an unplanned pregnancy to the human beings. As a result of his conception, there were baby boys murdered all around in his town. What does that tell us? Are you saying that because God chose to come to earth through the same act of conception that other human beings that come to earth through the act of conception, which is everybody, are somehow less valuable? Help me understand that. Do you understand? You're taking common ground, but you're using it to make a point. That's your fourth proof text. Five. The great commandment. You have the great commission, Matthew 28. You have the great commandment, Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus does a marvelous, wonderful, simplistic job of summing up all of Old Testament moral law into two simple sentences. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about this last year. I won't go into great detail. But for a pro-abortion Christian, simply ask the question, who is my neighbor and what does it mean to love them? Who is my neighbor and what does it mean to love my neighbor? I would argue that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor? It's basically everybody, particularly those who are vulnerable and oppressed, the bleeding man by the roadside. And loving our neighbor simply means that we treat them as we would want to be treated. How do you want to be treated? Can I argue with you that the very first thing that you do in the morning is get up and probably brush your teeth or take a shower to get yourself ready for the day? And then when you get into your car, what do you do? You buckle yourself in. Why do you buckle yourself in? You are protecting yourself. Why do you eat to feed yourself? Why do you sleep so that you get rested so you don't get ill? Why do you not do adrenaline junkie things when you're 46 years old? Because you like your life. (laughs) We exist, we love and care for ourselves primarily for making sure that ourselves and our loved ones are protected from harm and death and we do it every day without even thinking about it. It is our natural bent. I believe that is a primary call of the great commandment. Loving our neighbor means that we protect our neighbor. We secure our neighbor. We make sure our, our neighbor has welfare and well-being just like we do for ourselves. That's true spiritually, preaching the gospel. It is also true physically. Physically. And if preborn humans and their moms are neighbors, then what is our obligation as Christians to love our neighbor as ourselves? Does that make sense? 
Proof text number six. Uh, Amos 5, 21 to 24. So Human Coalition um, has had a wonderful year. I'm going to slip in a little bit of a ministry update here because Patrick asked that I would do that. For those of you that don't know the story, Human Coalition, this is unbelievable, celebrates its 10-year anniversary this year. It's unbelievable. December 31st, 2009, I very grudgingly got the paperwork from the IRS back that finally said the Human Coalition was a nonprofit organization and we started work right after that. So this is our 10-year anniversary. We rescued 15 babies in 2011, which is the first year we really started getting going. Last year, we rescued 2,803. In 2000, that's 2017. 2018, get this, we rescued 3,217. So last year, in part to your help and your prayers and your support, 3,217 children who were about to be aborted were rescued from death. Not only is the children rescued from death, we are now dealing with human trafficking issues. We've rescued several women, one very recently from a situation where she was being held in the basement with other women. She was pregnant. The gentleman that was holding them hostage was trying to get her an abortion. We were able to rescue her, get her out of the way, save the baby center to California. The gentleman that is holding them hostage is a cop. We have all sorts of these messy situations, and by God's providence, 3,217 children were rescued last year in acts of justice. We started a brand new innovation in June of 2018. Some of you are aware of it, but the abortion industry is moving very aggressively to tele-abortions, meaning, uh, I don't want to be too graphic, but they want to send an abortion pill to a woman's home, have her take the pill, abort the child, and never see a doctor. That's where it's moving, okay? Because they don't want the surgical process. It's, it's, it's difficult, and state laws are getting harder and harder, so the abortion industry is very public about this, but they are moving as quickly as possible to provide as many abortions at home as they can. In Kansas, Kansas reported this, in their last reported year, 55% of all abortions in Kansas were tele-abortions, were abortion pill abortions. In some cases, the woman still has to go to a doctor, but in many cases, they can circumvent that process. So we asked to start the country's first pro-life virtual clinic. We want to go toe-to-toe and begin to save those moms that we might not get as they go to an abortion clinic, but are contemplating the abortion pill. And we have a relationship with the state of Texas, Government and church intersecting. It's very interesting. But they basically contracted with us to start the country's first virtual pro-life clinic. So if you were to come to our office in Plano, you would see downstairs, we now have a, a, a massive call center. Massive. It's three times larger than what it was on the first floor of our office building in Plano. And there are five nurses and two social workers. And that's all they do. They take calls from women all over Texas who are about to afford their children. And they do things like provide them maternity housing. We're drop shipping diapers and car seats and baby formula. We are providing a holistic, comprehensive care for our women all over Texas, virtually, without a physical clinic or a mobile clinic. Now we have 13 of those too. We grew from six clinics to 14 clinics last year. It was a big year. But the virtual clinic is our biggest innovation in the last two and a half years. We have served in Texas 8,000 women since June who need help and support. We also then not only market to women who are just underprivileged, but we go try to find women who are legitimately at risk to abort. That clinic alone, over the phones, rescued 300 babies in 100 days. 300 babies from what we call abortion-determined situations. Human Coalition is the largest pro-life organization by staff. We have 155 staff people. I think we're the largest organization by budget. We'll close the year around $11 million in budget. 
And this year will be at least 16 million. We're growing again. God has been providential. But the infusion of technology and compassion and grace with the pro-life message and helping a woman at risk understand that abortion is not her only option is becoming increasingly effective. 15 babies in 2011, 2,800 in 2017, 3,200 last year. Do you see the momentum is beginning to move on our side? And I know you can say, hey, Brian, Human Coalition cooperatively rescued 3,200 children last year. That's one day's worth of American babies. I get it. We have a long way to go. We need to grow that 365 times, and Lord willing, that's exactly what we're going to do. But, by God's grace, we rescued a day's worth of babies. And that's up by several thousand percent of where it was even five years prior to that. You are intricately involved in that work. This year, I would love to be able to tell you what I think is going to happen. I stopped trying to predict God. (laughs) Every time we do a five-year plan, it's junk in like three months. So we just sort of wing it, and we trust God. We don't have any C-level executive. There's no chairman. There's no CFO. There's no COO at Human Coalition. We reserve all those roles for God. That's on purpose. God is the director. God is the chairman. God is the guy that gets it done at Human Coalition. The rest of us are there, and our job is not to screw it up. That's how we operate. And by God's grace, he's blessing that effort. That comes with a lot of shots. Anytime that you and I are involved in justice, we're going to take shots. I am roundly disliked by the abortion industry. I'm not particularly well liked by the pro-life movement. That's just the nature of being a disruptive, aggressive, innovative organization. I love the pro-life movement, but we are new, we are innovative, and as you, any of you who have grown businesses or organizations know, that's not always popular. But that's the price you pay for being justice. Your sixth biblical proof text is from Amos 5, 21 to 24. It is God railing against Israel. He says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me. He rejects the burnt offerings, the peace offerings. He rejects their songs, their harps. He says, not only do I not want them, I hate them. Why? Because not only was Israel ignoring the plight of the oppressed in their communities, they in fact were the oppressor. And God gives that beautiful verse in verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Your traditions, your worship services, your outward expressions of religion are worthless if you do not care for the vulnerable and oppressed among you. And ladies and gentlemen, there is no greater oppressed people group in our country than preborn children in their moms. There's no argument to combat that. None. So where do we as a church find common ground with others who don't believe that? You might come across a non-Christian who's big into social justice. Have that conversation about justice for preborn children and their moms. Mr. and Mrs. Proboard, help me understand why you seek justice racially, gender, sexuality, but you're fine trampling on justice for the innocent and weakest members of our society. I need to understand that. We have common ground. We both want justice. But your justice is discriminatory. Mine is not. Why? Have that conversation. It's a common ground proof text for you to talk about social justice. Do you know the number one word in the American lexicon in internet searches last year was justice? Do you think our country is concerned about justice? I have to tell you, it's selective. And it's not for all humans. Preborn children, 60 million of them dead since 1973, are the worst victims of social injustice in the history of the country. It is a worldwide epidemic. We as a church have a unique platform to talk about it. Two cautions. Two cautions. One, 
Do not confuse intrinsic value with emotional value. I was uh, debating several months ago a, uh, how do I put this, a pro-abortion Christian feminist Episcopal priest. Okay? I was asked to do a podcast. They wanted two Christians on the podcast, one pro-life, one pro-abortion, to debate the pro-life issue in a way that was civil and could show that Christians could disagree and not come to blows. And it was a very civil conversation. She was delightful. It was a very nice conversation. But she obviously comes from a pro-abortion position. My proof texts were uh, scripture. Her proof texts were sex in the city. So we were in different, different chains of how we develop our apologetic in our worldview. But at one point in the conversation, I said, look, the difference between me and my opponent is that she says the life of the womb is less valuable than the mother. I'm simply saying they're the same. And so our obligation is to work for the welfare of both, not just one. It, it's not right to discriminate against one simply because they're smaller or less developed or whatnot. And she said, I agree. And that is the root of the difference, by the way, in pro-life and pro-abortion. And the pro-aborts are having to now, because science is not on their side, basically say, you're right. We do devalue life, <laughs> which is a winner for all of us that are pro-life. But she said, look, help me understand this. In San Francisco a few months ago, there was an in vitro clinic that had frozen embryos and the power went out or something went wrong. They lost about 3,000 frozen embryos that day. It happened again in Cleveland a few months later. So four or 5,000 embryos, human beings, died because of a refrigeration problem in in vitro clinics. She said, Why, where is the moral outrage? How comes you don't feel emotionally bad for those 3,000 babies that were killed that died as a result of the in vitro clinic malfunction. And I said, well, we should be morally outraged. We should feel that way. And afterwards I thought, you know, here's the argument she's trying to make. She's trying to force us to believe that our emotional connection to somebody somehow determines their value. And the left uses this all the time. Ladies and gentlemen, if one of my friend's children died, I would be mortified and grieve with that person. But if, God forbid, one of my own children died, would I not grieve worse? My emotional attachment to my own kids is stronger than your kids. But your kids and my kids have the same intrinsic value. We can't confuse emotional attachment to intrinsic value. We are valuable because God gives us value. It doesn't matter how you and I feel about somebody. And it is a key component of the left that we need to be very careful. So make the distinction between emotional value and intrinsic value. Second caution. Do not bow to moral equivalence. I won't spend a lot of time on this. I talked about this a little bit last year. But oftentimes when I speak at churches, here's the way it goes. Hey, Brian, we're pro-life. We give 100 bucks a month for our pregnancy center. And we preach on it on Sanctity of Life Sunday. But, there's always a but. We have premarital counseling, we have a capital campaign we're putting new carpeting in, we have constant arguments about our worship service, we have divorce care, we have homeless ministry, and they say unconsciously that abortion is a menu item on an a la carte menu of things a church just has to get done. They create what's called a false moral equivalency, so that you and I somehow think that killing a child is the same moral weight as feeding the homeless. Ladies and gentlemen, they do not. And I'll prove it to you. If you're walking down the street and you see a five-year-old child being beaten to death by an assailant on one corner and you see a hungry homeless man on another corner, who are you going to help first? You're going to rescue the child from death. Now the question is, if God sees the zygote, the embryo, with the same moral weight as the five-year-old, then what should our response be to abortion? 
It is more important. It is more important to God rescuing human beings, whether they're in the womb or adolescent or age, is more important than anything else outside of our salvation. The eternal is more important than the temporal. I get it. Spiritual witnessing is essential. Leading those to Christ is, is primary. But a close second is that we rescue human beings from death. Do not be confused. Our personal preference and God's moral priority are often at odds, and we're wrong. God's moral priorities need to be our moral priorities. Our beliefs need to align with our behaviors. Two quick observations. One is education, two is engagement. All right? Education, engagement. My experience suggests that people who are educated on abortion do more to save babies from abortion. So get educated, okay? It's shocking because I doubt you will find any discipleship course of any note that has anything to crow life at all. I find it dumbfounding that all of the curriculums out there teaching men and women to be good Christians cover porn and finance and marriage and don't spend a lick of time talking about the leading cause of death in America. So you might have to dig a little harder. Shameless plug, I do a weekly podcast called The Human Element. It's riveting. <laughs> You're going to love it. I invite you to check it out, thehumanelementshow.com. It's weekly. It'll inform you. You will be edified, in some cases mortified. But you will also be engaged. Read books. Look at articles. Watch videos. Live action. Great organization. Puts out all sorts of videos. If you stay in ignorance, if I stay in ignorance, if our friends stay in ignorance, we will not become engaged in the effort to end abortion. Get educated. Now, you're educated. You have to listen to me once a year, and Patrick is talking about it all the time. So you are educated, but there's more we can do. There's more we can do. And if we understand that God's moral priority is different than ours and we need to align ourselves with him, then we will spend more time getting educated on abortion than we will on other things because we want to align ourselves with God's moral priority. Engagement. Uh, how do we become involved? Now, this church is radically involved. I want to give you one idea, and I am, I, I am stepping on uncharted territory here. So I'm going to close with this. Now, I'm not a pastor. I'm a businessman, so I, A, I'm not limited to three points in my sermon. <laughs> and B, I can say lots of different things from the pulpit that perhaps a pastor wouldn't. And I think Patrick would probably say this. But I'm going to share with you one way that you can become engaged tomorrow that is very tangible and very necessary. Are, are you ready? Okay. I'm going to link church and state. Are you going to hate me or are you going to be okay with that? Okay. Again, the church is the clarion of the pro-life ethic and therefore must place exertive influence on government to align itself with God's law. <laughs> I didn't get any men on that. I'm still waiting. Somebody say amen. amen. Okay, then. <laughs> president Trump is the most pro-life president we've had in the history of the United States. Can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth. But he is. Okay? He's an interesting public figure, but the reality is he is as pro-life as they come. His policies have been very pro-life. He wrote a beautiful letter out on the March for Life talking about how he will veto any legislation that comes to his desk that includes anything pro-abortion. We salute him. We applaud him. We pray for him. Uh, I have gotten to know a number of his staff. Our staff has met with he and, his, and the vice president and other folks. We have integrated well with the Trump administration. However, there is more that can be done. How many of you have heard of Health and Human Services? It's an agency that controls health care in America. It has a $1.1 trillion budget. It is filled with pro-life leaders. President Trump and his executives filled HHS with pro-life leaders. I am confused. I am upset, in some cases mortified, 
Because after two years of the Trump administration, the agency responsible for the health and well-being of American citizens has yet to spend a dime to rescue people who are victims of the leading cause of death in America. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that last week, Health and Human Services put out a five-point plan to address the opioid problem in America. Are you aware of that? A five-point plan. 115 Americans lose their lives every day to opioid addiction. That's terrible. It's tragic. Health and Human Services should be engaged in rescuing those individuals. Amen? Amen. Can I just ask a simple question? Abortion kills 3,000 Americans every day. Where the heck is the plan? Where's the plan? When does a pro-life administration go beyond doing policies which are helpful and actually engaging the public in rescuing human beings? I have spent two years up in Washington, D.C. We have a small team in D.C. We have made that argument for two years. We have gotten nowhere. Why? The irony is that HHS came out with its own five-year strategic plan a year ago. And do you know, in the strategic plan, it specifically in the preamble says that human life begins at conception. Unlike the Obama administration, the Trump administration, HHS, says that they exist as an agency to rescue and protect and maintain health for all human beings from conception to natural death. Two million dead babies in the last two years. No plan, no dollars, nothing of material value from the most powerful health agency on the planet. So people ask me all the time, are you excited about Trump? Yep. Not very excited about his health and human services. It's his agency. He's in charge. He's in control. Where are the dollars? Where is the education? Where is the aggressive plan to, lead in, to end the leading cause of death in America? If I've offended you, I'm sorry. If I've got you jazzed up, I'm really happy. <laughs> so I invite you to send an email to the secretary of HHS. His email is secretary at hhs.gov. <laughs> secretary at hhs.gov. His name is Secretary Azar. Nice guy. Showed up at March for Life events last week. A couple things I was at, he was at. It's great. It's time to put some pressure on our government. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to get many chances like this in history to affect the course of history. And the federal government has a whole lot to do with the health and well-being of American citizens. i got to tell you, I'm done being nice. I've been nice and civil for two years. I'm done being nice. Two million dead babies, that's on my conscience. It's on all of our consciences. The United States government needs to get it together and turn it around. Don't look to Congress. They're a mess. They're not doing anything. Do not expect them to do fun, bland parenthood. Not happening. There's great congressional people that are pro-life. That Congress is as far from pro-life as it was 10 years ago. We've got to work on the Trump administration, most specifically HHS. Will you consider that? That's one application that you can do. You can call their office. I'd love you to call Azar's office. You can email his office. That'd be awesome. This is being recorded. The IRS can come after me. I don't care. We've got to say baby. Amen. Amen. Six proof texts, two cautions, two applications for us as a church, individually, to consider how to be winsome in our arguments, to be effective in our apologetics, to convert those folks to a pro-life worldview. The mushy middle is easier. Those that don't want to take a position, your friends and family, that I don't want to talk about it, they're fairly easy to move. Those that are religiously opposed to the pro-life ethic, they're harder. But we should pray for them and we should work with them anyway. Because ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, our job is to make abortion unthinkable and unavailable in this country. Not for you and me, not for our own benefit. For the benefit of those moms and kids and dads, but most notably, to the glory and the honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Because you and I want the same thing. We don't care about the, the, the applause of men. We don't care about the curses of men. We want to hear one thing. 
Well done, now good and faithful servant. That's what I want. That's what you want. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. We rejoice and be glad in it because, Lord, you have ordained our days before they were born. That's what Psalm 139 says. You have ordained our days when as yet there was none of them. Father, you have ordained the days, you have ordained that human beings are created in your image and that there is no such thing as a mistake. Everybody here, everybody in the world, regardless of how they came into being, is a divine image bearer, is a divine work of art, and worthy of value and of being protected. And that is a unique role of your people. We pray that you would give us winsome thoughts and arguments, that you would give us the right things to say, that you would give us the right time to say them, so that although we are deeply involved in ending abortion here as a church, we might spread that ethic, that pro-life worldview to many, many of those around us, and that your word, therefore, would spread, that we would see a chorus of Christians rise up across this country and say, we are going to demand of our federal government, we are going to demand of our churches, we are going to demand of our communities that they do, in fact, treat the preborn the way that we are treated. And God, give us the answer to the prayer we have prayed for years and years. May abortion be made unthinkable and unavailable in our lifetimes, not for our glory, but for yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.